Hey friends, before we get to today's episode, I want to talk to you about unicorns. You know I think we're all unicorns because we have special gifts and talents, and because we're all so special, it's important that we invest in things that will help us get to the next level. In fact, 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. louder you are, the less likable you are. Whereas in America, you need to be loud or you're never going to be heard from. And people actually appreciate individuality, diversity in many ways, right? Of course, we have room to improve, but it's the saying in Asia that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. All right, friends, we are back with another amazing guest, Sarah Chen Spellings. Sarah and I met through her podcast, Billion Dollar Moves, which is also part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, and we just really connected. I find her journey so inspirational. She is the co-founder of Beyond the Billion, launched as the Billion Dollar Fund for Women, the world's first and largest consortium of over 100 venture funds and limited partner investors that have pledged to invest and are actively deploying beyond $1 billion towards women-founded companies. In under two years, the consortium has deployed $638 million and counting in close to 800 female-founded companies, of which 14 have been recognized as unicorns. Previously, Sarah was on the pioneer team of a corporate venture capital unit within a publicly traded Asian conglomerate investing in later stage biotechnology companies. And since then, she has been at the forefront of multi-million cross-border investments, structuring and executing commercialization plans with her portfolio companies. Determined to see more women at the helm, she sits on multiple boards, including 131 and Counting, a bipartisan effort encouraging more women to run for office in the U.S., and Lean in Malaysia, which she co-founded, a platform accelerating women in leadership in Malaysia. Named Young Global Leader of the World Economic Forum and Forbes 30 Under 30 VC, Sarah is a recognized speaker, strategist, and commentator on venture capital, startups, and women in leadership. As you can see, Sarah has a very impressive background with a purpose-driven mission. Although we talked about a number of highs in her journey, we also had a vulnerable conversation about grief. I had planned to actually edit this part out of the conversation because it gets emotional, but Sarah told me to keep it in. It was a human moment that neither of us expected. And it made me think about my grief journey and how it is so important to feel our emotions and just let them go. As high achieving professionals, there are spaces where we have to keep it together, keep our emotions in, and it can be tough. I often feel lighter after a good cry. I also notice when I have an emotional moment about my mom that I feel so much 
discomfort and resistance when a well-intentioned person says, oh, don't cry. I didn't mean to make you cry. Please don't cry. And I just want to say, please let me cry. Let me cry about my mom. You didn't make me cry. It's just grief. Let me honor this pain. I know it will pass. It always does, but I have to go through it. And in this conversation, I let Sarah go through it. We sat with the emotion. Sarah shared her thoughts on grief and even a poem to honor her late father. It was really beautiful, and her story serves as a reminder that despite life's unanticipated challenges, you have the power to rise to the occasion. I can't wait for you all to hear this conversation, so let's get to it. All right, so we are here with Sarah Chen Spellings. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me on No Straight Path. As I mentioned, Sarah and I are both in the HubSpot Podcast Network together, and I'm just so excited about our connection. We have very similar energy, and I'm excited to learn about your story. Thanks, Ashley, for having me. And the vibe is mutual, and I'm excited to be here as well. Yeah, yeah. So I would love to just start from the beginning. Tell us about little Sarah. How did you grow up, your family, your upbringing, And then perhaps we can see how little Sarah shows up in the work that you're doing today. Mm, Interesting way of putting that and framing that. So where do I begin? I think I I usually start at the age of nine because that's, uh, you know, when you talk about sort of pivotal moments in your life, you know, one of that was when I was nine years old. So I grew up in Malaysia. So, uh, you know, it's a Muslim majority country. I'm a ethnically, my great grandfather's from China. And so I'm ethnically Malaysian Chinese and grew up in that environment. And that all comes into play later on. But at nine years old, you know, uh, there was actually a group of TV producers that were auditioning kids in my school for a TV show. And I saw that it piqued my interest. But I will say, you know, at nine years old, I was still a little bit unsure of myself, not that confident, I would say. And I, you know, went into the car and I can still remember this moment, you know, getting in the car, you know, my dad picked me up and I told him about, hey, you know, daddy, there was this thing. They were auditioning kids. And he's like, wait, what? Wait a minute, like today? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think, but they're wrapping up now. He's like, no, 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 we're going to turn around and let's get you an audition. And I was like, oh, but I'm not sure, you know, maybe I'm too late. He's like, no, we're going to try. And he negotiated with the director at that time. They were just closing out the last few auditions and I made it. And lo and behold, you know, I I did sort of, you know, stood up to the pressure, I suppose, at the moment, did my thing, even though I was unsure myself. And I will say, so I got through the audition, I made the cut and eventually became a national TV host at nine years old for a good five years of my life. And that, you know, looking back when you asked me about things that have impacted me, that has certainly put, you know, a positive trajectory in my life in so many ways, because it was not just a TV program. I mean, first of all, there's an element of you need a, you know, first of all, we had to make sure we had good grades while being on the TV program. So there was that element of balancing, you know, your grades. And then in the evenings after school as a nine-year-old, then deciding to, okay, then, you know, switch gears and go to the studio, film, so on and so forth. And media has always been in my blood in some way. And that's been a good thing, as you know, being a creator. And more importantly, it was also the fact that my father always believed in me. And, you know, that whole sort of turning around and not giving up and and also just making sure that you stepped into your light no matter what, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. I think that was a 
a big part of it. And another part is also, of course, you know, it was a TV program, but it was the people behind it, behind the company, the production company have become, you know, really close folks in my life. You know, I, I take them as really my godparents, right? Uncle Sabri and Auntie Wati. And they were also philanthropists and that they wanted to give back. And this was a way beyond the TV program, was also a way to leverage our voice in some way, right? So giving each of us our voice to champion different issues at a very young age. So I can remember, you know, from the age of 16, being sent to Brazil as part of the you know, cohort to speak about the rights of children in media and what we consume. I was you know, exposed to United Nations and volunteered with you know, many different groups like UNICEF as part of that group as well. So a lot of different elements there, but I'll start with that. Yeah, no, I love that. So many questions already. That's such a unique upbringing and such a really cool experience, I can imagine. So can you tell me a little bit more about being on TV so young? Do you feel like you had to grow up faster? Do you feel like you got to have a normal childhood, you know, get that self-discovery in? Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, you know, I will say, I don't think I was the best host there was, but of course you develop over time, practice makes perfect. But it really opened my aperture in terms of understanding the world as a young kid, right? So I was, I mean, we had... Uh, telling you more about the TV show it was every Sunday, and there were four different segments from cyber and IT, right? So back in the day, what were the top computer games, the top books, the top technology hacks that we should be looking at? There was an interview portion of it where I got a chance to interview. Actually, my first few interviews I can that really left an impression on me was with the general manager of Dutch Lady, which is this milk company who happened to be a woman. And I didn't realize that impact on me, you know, that will come later on, but also interviewing like an archaeologist and being curious about history, being on set in different places and covering different stories, right? So there are different segments and different elements of what that required of me as a young kid. And I think it definitely, like I said, you know, expanded my worldview and sort of pushed my curiosity to ask questions that perhaps I wouldn't have if I wasn't exposed to that. And yeah, I mean, that element of balance and also, I, I guess, in some way, maybe that was simply providing a platform because I do believe, you know, who you are, you do come to who you want to be. And there's an element of development and nurturing there, but who you are at the core doesn't really, really change. Right. Mm -hmm. And my nature of just rising to the occasion, being put in opportunities where, you know, I never expected, but doing it anyway, even though it's hard. It's, I think, part of my character and having that platform was certainly amazing and, and I'm grateful for that. And, and it's really shaped not just my character, but also, you know, the trajectory of, of my life for sure. I love that. I love that. And I am just also curious about, because you started working at such a young age. Yeah. What did you like to do and or do you like to do outside of work? Oh, as a kid? Yeah, I want to. <laughs> you know, that's a funny question, but interesting one, because I think maybe this is where it all comes to be, right? Where I've always, I've never really seen it as work because I enjoyed it, right? I was learning. I always, and I think, you know, women, we get asked this a lot, right? Work-life balance, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think it's about integration, especially in our generation where we're so privileged in that we get to do what we love in many ways. It's no longer the sort of 
situation. And of course, you have to build yourself into that. And not everybody gets to do it from day one, but you get to do things that you're, you know, mission aligned with, that you're passionate about, compared to, you know, the days of our parents where it was a job was a job to put food on the table and then you did something fun outside of it. So I would say my whole experience in being, you know, it was called Golden Kids Club and it was pre-YouTube days, so you won't find me with funny hairstyles, hopefully. But, you know, it was just hanging out with my friends. There were about 12 of us at that time, between 9 to 13 years old, learning from each other, hanging out with the crew and learning from the crew, you know, learning about different topics. That was fun for me. But outside of that, you know, I did everything you can imagine a a kid would do, you know, getting into trouble and playing in the back alley when my dad told me not to, falling in the ditch, right, because I was cycling too fast or things like that. I would say I had a great childhood. There was nothing that was out of reach in many ways and couldn't be happier. I love that. I love that. So it seems like I can see the connection already of all the work that you've done as a child and the work that you're doing now with content creation and speaking events and everything that you do. But could you tell me about your career trajectory? And I know there's been a lot of different pivots, but perhaps you can tell us about the most interesting pivot or the one that's put you on the path that you are Mm. today. Yeah. So you're catching me at a really great time because I just gave a keynote actually at a business school graduation and Obviously, I'm a lot younger than many of them, right? This was like a mid-career program that I uh, helped to, I was called to give a keynote on. And, you know, I I always start off my speeches in some form of this, especially when I'm in a crowd where, you know, I know there are skeptical eyes. And it's uh, the fact that, of course, you know, I am too young to be here, but there are reasons for that. And I'm hopeful that, you know, my story and even sharing this with you would frame how you can also hopefully take some inspiration. And and by no means do I think I'm successful. I'm not there yet. I'm I'm on the way, I believe so. But part of it was, you know, at nine years old, I was a TV host, right? At the age of 22, after university, right? So I was called back from law school. I went to law school in King's College, London, uh, one of the best law schools in the world. And I wanted to have an international career, right? Because you imagine my childhood, I've been exposed to the globe. And I imagine myself as a young global leader in many ways, which which I'm actually interestingly becoming and was called. But part of that was also, unfortunately, my father was diagnosed with cancer at B, you know, when I was 21 and 22 was when it really got really bad. And he called me back to return to Malaysia to help with the family business. So he owned a, an American franchise, which was in executive management, executive search as well. And, you know, being an Asian daughter, when your father calls you, you come back. So, you know, tacked my international career plans for a while. And this was after I experienced many levels of it, right? Like I had an internship and I was always an overachiever. So I had like a top internship, you know, staying in a huge penthouse studio in in Chicago with Baker McKenzie and then going to London, working with Norton Rose and all these big law firms. And then my father calls me and, you know, by that time, I also decided that law probably wasn't going to be my full-time career. And I was already intrigued by business because I started the business club in King's College London, which sustains to today. But I was called to help with the business. And in effect, at the age of 22 at that time, 21, 22, he was actually, you know, dying. And it was really difficult in that I had to pretend to come in and help the business when in fact I was, you know, an interim CEO in many ways. 
And, you know, doing that, especially in a culture that doesn't necessarily immediately recognize young women in leadership, right? That was certainly very hard. I can still remember, I'll share with you, you know, I put way too much makeup because I wanted to look older and wanted to be taken more seriously. I put a fake ring on my finger. I mean, this is real now, but then I put a fake ring on my finger because, you know, I wanted to seem older, more established and and all of the above. And of course, also didn't want to be associated as his daughter immediately, right? I would tell clients that I'm a new person coming in, that sort of thing. But yeah, that whole experience, you know, at the age of 21, 22 really hits you. I realized how hard running a business was, the responsibility, the massive responsibility of what it means to hire employees and be responsible for their rice bowls, right? So that humbled me a lot. And I will say, you know, I felt like I faltered in that chapter, but it, you know, opened up my eyes into the fact that running a business is a very noble thing. And, you know, it takes a lot of hard work to get there. But um, yeah, you know, that's the chapter that I think was pivotal. And how I transitioned into corporate was part of my father's request, actually, my late father's request, you know, where he was seeing me at the age of, by then, you know, 22, 23, not going out with my friends, not being a young person, just working all the time and trying my best to like, hold this business together. And he said, you know, maybe you should, this business will, and he, he will always say it in this tone, right? Because that's the, the endearing way of calling his daughter, he'll say, girl, you know, you look so stressed. Why don't you just go and be in corporate for a while? This business is always here. You can always come back to it. But go and get some corporate experience, you know? And, and uh, I had an opportunity to work with a large Asian conglomerate, 13 billion market cap. And yeah, found my way there and was one of the first few hires of a corporate venture capital unit, which put me on the venture capital path. I love that. That's such an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I am curious because you talked about the really challenging time with just keeping the business going and really mm. being an interim CEO, but you're also dealing with the pain of seeing the deterioration and unfortunate ultimate loss of your father, you know, for someone who has also experienced the loss of my mother to cancer, I can't imagine, you know, running this business while dealing with the impending grief. How did you deal with it? Did you compartmentalize it to get through it? Did you heal later the internal Hmm. part? What did you do? Yeah, that's a deep question. And one that frankly, I've not thought of much of. And I will say, I think my general approach, which is not advisable is like, to focus and like, you know, get through it and like focus on the next thing and the next thing. And and that's actually a flaw that I highly recommend people not to follow. And it's something I'm working on. But I was so focused on making sure I could control what I could control. Yeah, that I didn't allow the I guess the emotion to creep in too much yeah and this is hard this is hard because then this happens right and no no I was just curious what you're saying I just appreciate the honesty because I think a lot of people do that a part of what I do on this Mm. podcast we can totally cut whatever you want just so you know no I think this is fine this is fine this is good (laughs) I'm here for it I knew we were gonna talk about it but I'm never like I don't know prepared for emotion yeah Yeah. and that's the truth right the truth is you are never prepared for grief and oh my god this is 
I'm going to sound terrible, but it, <clears throat> let me gather myself. You are never prepared for grief. And I mean, it's been, what, 13 years? Yeah. And I'm still like this, right? Because it's the remembrance of how hard it was. And yeah, yeah. so it was really hard, I will say. And I tend to do this, right? I, I like, you know, focus on what I can control, let the emotion like, you know, repress it as much as I can and take inspiration from it though I will say it's like I'm often in places where I feel I can do so much I have a lot to give I have garnered all this experience through the hardship that I owe it to myself I owe it to others to be the best and to rise to the occasion right so yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I have no advice <laughs> on this because clearly I've not dealt with it. Or, you know, I, actually, I will say you don't really deal with it because it becomes a part of you and you yeah. take inspiration from it. And grief is like the hardest thing <laughs> to lose someone you love, someone so close to you. It's like the hardest thing. And yeah, I mean, my dad was like my guiding light in so many ways. And, you know, he's, I think the human experience of seeing you know, this is the hardest part. And maybe you, you'll resonate with this because you experienced some version of this based on what we talked about. Yeah. But it's the disintegration of someone you look up to because of their humanness that is really, really difficult. So yeah, I mean, I charge through and, and I do that a lot, right? I try to focus on what I can control and take it from there. I try to remember that I hope he's proud of me every day that I'm yeah. trying. Yeah, I know he is. I know he is. Thank you for sharing that. I only asked you that just because I think high achieving women like us, the way that we deal with challenging things is it can look like a lot of perfection. It can look like, oh, yeah, I want to do everything I can to honor the person I love. And like you said, it's a journey and you carry it and it's integration. You never really get over it because of love. It's just, an expression of how much you love that person and how much they loved you. Absolutely. And if I may, I mean, this is like, I'm going on like totally different tangents you didn't didn't expect, but I'll share this with you Um, because I think it's, it's really prescient for the moment. Right. And this is one of my father's and mine favorite poems. It's by E. Cummings and it's called, I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. And it says, I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I'm never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my well, my true. And it is you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here's the deepest secret nobody knows. Here's the root of the root, and the bud of the bud, and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the one that's like, keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. And that's what I feel about, you know, just death and grief and how to move forward, right? Because I carry his heart with me. It's always with me. It is. It is. That is so beautiful. I am. Please send me that poem. Please send me that. <laughs> I will. I will. 
episode, friends, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about another amazing podcast, and that's Latinx Empower, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, which is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Latinx Empower is a podcast that features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insights from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their careers. I think you'll love a recent episode on toxic positivity in the workplace. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcast. That was so powerful. And I'm just curious now just about mm. what you're doing. What are you doing right now? What are you passionate yeah. about? What am I doing? I mean, <laughs> I will I say, you know, some days it's like there's so much to do that you get lost in the thick of it, right? So I guess topping off the story because it all connects. Basically, what happened was, you know, I went into corporate and I was in a huge bureaucracy where I was, you know, in my 20s, fire my belly, burning for, you know, the title, the job responsibilities. I wanted more, more, more. And it was really hard, right? Being a young woman in a bureaucratic environment and, and particularly in a government-linked company in Malaysia, right, where there's certain connotation, i.e., you know, it moves a little bit slower, there's a lot of weight team, that sort of thing. You have to follow protocol, so on and so forth. Like you couldn't, it wasn't the, you know, it's none of this open door policy that you have in America to have a meeting with, uh, you can't just say, okay, I want a meeting with the CEO of your head of department, whatever. You need to actually like follow protocol and, and get those times, that sort of thing, right? So it's very much, when I joined, it was very much a closed door policy, which was very against again. And remember, I grew up in this, world of like almost a warp reality with being on a TV show where, you know, hey, Sarah, go and do this, go and do that, right? Where I thought I could do everything. And then you're telling me, oh, wait a minute, you're too young. You're too, you know, everything that's not supposed to be. Like I, I ticked every wrong box, right? Like too loud for a woman, too aggressive in a, in a bad way. Being ambitious is a bad word, right? You need to do it in a tactical way. It's almost like I have this likability graph that I, I share with my friends in America and Asia. The louder you are, the less likable you are. Whereas in America, you need to be loud or you're never going to be heard from. And people actually appreciate individuality, diversity in many ways, right? Of course, we have room to improve, but it's the saying in Asia that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, right? And this was not what I was used to. So I entered this environment and I was like hungry for more. And I literally asked many people that I had coffee with, okay, who's the youngest person in this organization that is like a senior vice president, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, the top, 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 top of the hierarchy, but maybe at this level, like senior vice president, that might be pretty aspirational. And I found out this guy, his name is Asli. Uh, he was, you know, in his 40s and he worked in group strategy and I just, frankly, I just reached out to him and I said, hey, you know what, really, I'm a new employee in this company. I would really want to learn from you and about your career path. You know, what's your no straight path and can I have a coffee with you? And he said yes. And from there, I kid you not, I can still remember this right in his office. I was like on the, you know, the highest floor of this like skyscraper building and I enter his office and the first thing he asked me, is like, okay, you know, tell me your background, so and so forth. And it was a good thing that I, so the law part comes in handy because then his eyes lit up the moment he heard that I had a legal background. 
And from there, he turned this meeting, this coffee meeting, into an interview. He asked me basically the typical consulting question, as some of your folks may, may know, but basically how many ping pong balls can you fit in a Boeing 747? And I impressed him with my way of thought because I, you know, I was trained in this. I knew it was not the answer itself, but it's how you arrive at the answer. It shows your thinking process, so on and so forth. And you know, by the end of, I want to say like that hour or less than that, he basically said, okay, Sarah, tomorrow you report to me, okay? Like, don't go to your whatever department you were in. Like, come to me. I will sort out the paperwork. You will work for me. I was like, okay, we're game. And basically, I was hire number, by that time, hire number three, like the first few hires of what was going to be a $150 million corporate venture capital unit that started as a strategy paper, right? So I worked with him. He was in group strategy. It became a rollout for this corporate to make strategic investments into startups and biotech. And because I was that girl who had some legal background, and I happened to be one of the only ones in the team that had that legal background, I was given so much responsibility at a young age. I often say, you know, this guy gave me such a long leash to go and negotiate. Like my first deal was a 30 million deal. And I negotiated with the head counsel and, you know, there were meetings he couldn't show up for and he just sent me. And because I was confident in myself, I just took it anyway and realized like, okay, you know, now in my older age, I'm like, ah, there were certain things I probably shouldn't have done there. But, you know, I learned along the way. I was, you know, negotiating cross-border investments that I loved. And I was dealing with like tech structuring, like A to Z of structuring like a multi-million dollar investment. And that really got me started on this trajectory of loving venture capital and bringing that. So venture capital, that was one piece, right? That's a theme in my life right now. And then the second piece was as I continued in my journey, right? I was doing the hard thing of like whatever was required for me to like get ahead in my career and also get this deal done. I, I loved it, right? So it was working till, I don't know, three, whatever was required because we were doing US deals from Malaysia. And at some point I realized, hey, wait a minute, am I the only woman? Am I the only one who looks like me and talks like me? And I was like, yeah. And I realized this happened and again and again in so many different rooms that I was in. And I was also wondering, like, you know, but I, I did deal with women, right? Some of the smartest women were in my company were dealing with me from a different perspective of like being engineers, right? We needed engineers, we needed scientists who are doing the technical due diligence on the companies, and we would depend on them, right? So I was on the commercial team, but I realized this phenomenon of like 5 p.m., 6 p.m., so many of the women, most of the women would check out and head home no matter what. And the 8 p.m. meetings that was after hours, it was just me and a bunch of guys, basically. And that was because I was single at that time, right? And I realized, you know, over time, these women, although they were smart, although they were contributing in so many different ways, they were not getting the keys to the corner office. And of course, we know why, because it's expected of a woman to handle the domestic responsibilities. So even though I was working with married men, the same expectation did not apply to them. And over time, I, you know, I chatted with many of my different friends and we came to the same question of, wait, what's going on with the women in Malaysia? Like, is there a future for us? And we realized there was only 5% of CEOs in Malaysia at that point in time in 2016, 2015, that were women. And that, you know, we needed to make sure we do what we could to find role models and figure out how do we even get there? How do you make sure we stay in the game? 
And that actually catapulted me to becoming an accidental feminist, right? I was still doing my corporate career, blah, blah, blah. But I was asking these questions. And the result of that was me and a friend over coffee decided, okay, let's, you know, um, bring some women together. Let's find a role model and let's talk about this. And at that time, the whole feminism movement, women in leadership movement, it was still very, very nascent. So I think we benefited from the moment in time as well. So what we did was we eventually brought the brand Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg to Malaysia, right? We read the book, loved it, wanted to take inspiration from it and make it our own as well. And that event that was supposed to be, you know, basically we got ahead of a stock exchange that happens to be a woman to say, okay, you know, let's bring your girlfriends together. Let's gather in the Malaysian Petroleum Club for dinner and let's talk about this. And I kid you not, this was early days of Facebook. Abir, my co-founder then of Lean in Malaysia and myself, put it on Facebook, expecting to get, you know, 10 people. But we had interest from like 80 people. And after that event, the next one was like 100. The next one was 1,000. And we had the support of government. We had the Ministry of Women support, the youth ministry. We had the corporates come in and things like that. And I think, you know, the style that hopefully you'll see as we continue conversations is, you know, when I see something and I believe in it, I'll just... I know no other way than to give it my all. Yeah. And it became this whole movement. And of course, it became a whole organization that sustains today, but really is all about empowering women into leadership. And we have an, a, salary, a career accelerator. We've got a, you know, a great team that runs it now. I'm, I'm just on the board right now. But yeah, we became the voice of credibility in the short amount of time for women in leadership. And that forced me to learn about, okay, why are we having this problem? What needs to be really achieved here? How can we change things? All the while, you know, uh, I'm still doing the deals. I'm still in corporate VC. And, you know, that's how sort of the two themes of my life of women in leadership and uh, venture capital came to be. And, you know, we arrive at this moment and I know there's so much detail you probably want to, you know, ask about, but, you know, we arrive at this moment of, the billion dollar fund for women, which is what I'm doing right now, which is the culmination of these two things. Wow. I love <laughs> so much. What an exciting journey. What a mission oriented journey. I am curious about the issues that you saw with regard to mm. the actual women in leadership issues in Malaysia. Like, What is holding women back when it comes to these leadership roles and sustainability and being able to just stay in the game, as you said. Yeah, so there are a couple of things, right? Because I've worked in this area of getting women in leadership for a while now, you know, a lot of my early conclusions have even changed, right? I think there's a lot, especially with Lean In, it's a lot about questioning the woman herself, right? That she needs to be a certain way, da da da. And that is actually one of the critiques of Charles Sandberg's approach in that she's a privileged, you know, white woman who basically has all these opportunities and she's almost putting the fault on the pressure on the woman to be more confident, you know, take up space and all these things. But what I realized over time and with age as well, there's so much layers of structure, structural biases, structural issues that needs to first be addressed, right? Of course, I think it's important, right, the capacity building for women to be more confident in certain rooms. But you know, think about this. If you, you train a woman to, I almost experienced that, right? I, I was confident by the time I got into the workplace, but then people did not receive that confidence well, 
it came across as arrogance. It came across as immaturity or whatever, because women were not expected to fit into that mold, not expected to fit into that stereotype. And so what needs to really change, I think, you know, one of the key issues at the core, at the core of a lot of these things and why we don't see women in leadership in the way that we should is not the lack of talent, right? Talent is universal, yeah. opportunity is not. But it's also the deeply ingrained biases and socialization of stereotypes that hold women back, right? You know what, what I was talking about with the women checking out, why is it that women were expected to hold the majority of the domestic responsibilities on their shoulders? In fact, in Lean in China, so one of my counterparts where we launched Lean in Asia together, Lean in China did a report on why this issue exists in China even and found that a lot of it was the battle is not only in the workplace, but also in the household, right? Whenever something happens, when there's a choice between a man's career and a woman's career, it is, I want to say, 90% at this stage globally, the woman is expected to take a step back, not the man, right? Mm -hmm. And there's ego in play. There's so many elements in play. There are men that think that they are supporters and allies, but when it comes to their own personal lives, it doesn't apply and that holds women back. So I think you know, the core number one is let's question the stereotypes that exist, right? Are you telling, I mean, it, it starts from even parenting. Are you telling your little boy to get rough and play in the sandbox, take all that risk and all that and telling our girls to, hey, you know, you've got a pretty dress. Let's be careful. You know, you don't want to dirty that dress, that sort of thing. A lot of these things are internalized and manifest in different ways in how we expect leaders to show up, right? So even the fact that if a woman is coming to, I guess, closer to where it landed with the startup world, there was a study that was done where women are being asked when they pitch preventative questions. So what's the risk in this company, right? What are the pitfalls here versus promotional questions in men? So growth potential. And we know that the bigger the vision, right? The bigger the check that follows, so on and so forth. And it all comes to play in that. So it starts from, you know, what do we expect, right? Is a woman who's actually assertive and visionary accepted as she is, or is she seen to be too pushy, not likable, right? Oh, she shouldn't be this way. Her voice is too shrill. Her voice is this, mm. right? So that's so many, I guess, real biases that manifest that comes about, which holds women back. And, you know, the pipeline problem, one of the key things and all across, it still hasn't changed much today. I think we're improving, but there's still a lot more to be desired. But over time, the pipeline, women, you know, are graduating at much higher rates than ever before. That's a plus point. But as we go further, further down the line, right to the top of the, I guess, the CEO position and things like that, that number whittles down tremendously. And we call it the leaky pipeline. And that's because of, again, you know, is she expected to take a step back when she gets uh, married and have kids? Mm -hmm. And I will say one of the key things that we did in Lean in Malaysia was the Women Career Accelerator program to get women back into the workforce because that was one of the biggest issues as well, where women were dropping out of the workforce, but not coming back. Mm -hmm. And part of that was, you know, they were being asked questions and being compared to men who have already been in the workforce while they were, you know, giving birth and raising a family and they were penalized for the years that they were not in action, right? So she's no longer relevant, so on and so forth. So that's the, you know, career dropout issue. That's a pipeline issue. That's the aspirational issue of, you know, are we also socializing our women to not want that, 
right? Eventually, where, and I mean, coming to the context of America, it becomes a little bit more nuanced in that, you know, childcare is so expensive these days, right? Where you really have to have a really, really good job to say that it's worth paying for the childcare and, you know, not spending the time with your kids, right? So a lot of these things come into play. So it's really hard for me to say this is the one issue, but there's so many levels to that. I mean, even from the funding side of things, right? It's the thing of women and people of color. Many of us have not had the same access and privilege points. I'll give you an example of the track record. You might be familiar with this given the work you've done in the past, but say a fund manager, we don't have a lot of women check writers right now. And that is a problem. That is also part of why women are not being funded enough because when a woman writes a check, another woman is twice more likely to get funded, right? Because we understand the context, so on and so forth. But for women to be check writers, right? To be a fund manager, there's always the question of, okay, what's your track record for you to be able to be my money manager? Because remember, venture capitalists are also money managers. They're not all wealthy, right? It's not their own money. It's other people's money that they're managing. And this question of a 10-year track record, not everybody has it, right? I didn't necessarily go to Goldman Sachs and, you know, earn this income, nor could I have called my dad the way that, you know, uh, Bill Gates had his dad and his mom to, you know, help him up with 250000 to start off. We didn't have all these opportunities. And therefore, you can't hold us to the exact same, I wouldn't call it standards because we're not lowering our standards. We're just adjusting it to the reality. Right. So it's like asking an intern, I would put it that way, an intern for job experience when this intern is trying to get job experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was very insightful. If you have any lessons learned that you'd like to share or any final thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Mm. So, I mean, we touched on this briefly, right, with the work that I'm doing at the Billion Dollar Fund for Women. And and essentially, that's a global consortium of venture capital funds that have pledged to invest and are actively deploying over a billion dollars into female founded companies. And it's, you know, strictly venture capital as an asset class. We work with fund managers, we work with the portfolio companies as well. And all of that is to address the egregious gender venture investment gap. And, you know, what I will say is, I never expected myself to be doing this, right? And I think many of us land in places where we never really expect. But I truly believe there is a reason for everything. I mean, this is cliche, but there's a reason you're placed in that prime position to execute on a certain thing. And for me, you know, and and I just had someone who's uh, really special on my podcast as well. And she really said this in the right way in which, you know, sometimes you just are called to do the big thing and you just need to do it. And there's a reason for that. And I think it's incumbent upon us that are put in these positions to rise to the occasion. You don't have to come from a position of privilege. You know, you could lose your home. You could lose a lot of all these things, but you will always figure it out, right? So nothing that is scary and, and huge that feels too weighty in some way is ever truly out of reach. I'm now in a community. I'm a young global leader with the World Economic Forum. I'm hanging out with, you know, my friends are uh, politicians, are top of the game in so many ways. And I've really been grateful for the opportunity to just call upon them and their sage advice. But one of the biggest things that I learned is that if they can do it, why not you? Right? Why not me? Yes. And everybody is truly, truly human. And and I know that's what you're, you're trying to also push forward with this podcast, right? In that 
you're given this one life. And my mom would say this to me, and this is part of the inspiration as well, right? This is a whole different tangent. But my mom, you know, she grew up in a small village in Malaysia, didn't really speak much English. Then her biggest dream was to be a secretary. And then she became managing director of a Japanese automotive company, right? With Daihatsu, Volvo, Federal, all, all those big names. And I remember as a young girl, she asked me this question. She said, you know, Sarah, from nine to five, no matter what, you're going to be at work, right? Because you're, you know, you chose this path. Do you want to be the secretary or you want to be the CEO? You might as well be the CEO. And I think for most of us, you know, we, we actually are, the fact that anyone's listening to this podcast, right, means that you own a mobile phone, you have Spotify, whatever ways, internet, the world has opened up in a huge way in that I think it's incumbent on our generation to really do the big thing, whatever that is for you, right? To not be afraid of the big dream and going for it, right? I will say every time people ask me with the billion dollar fund for women, you know, it, it was a big, hairy, audacious goal. And I always credit my co-founder for this, right? Shelly Porges, who came up with the name, the billion dollar fund for women. And part of our success was the fact that putting billion next to women was unheard of. And so we had, you know, invitations to the big rooms that mattered to the tables that matter. And then when you're given a seat at the table, you know, you need to rise to the occasion. And that's really become my life principle and what I'm trying to do. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.